What's the most insane housing situation that you know of a friend that's currently in? Like, what's where it's like, I can't believe this this person is living like this. My ex was living with seven roommates in a two-bedroom apartment, and it was, they had sectioned off the living room, which wasn't big, into three bedrooms, and then each person in the two bedrooms was sharing the bedroom, and it was just... I mean, you'd walk through the door and it was like, oh, sorry, like you've stepped on someone's bed. Like you couldn't, <laughs> the only part that wasn't completely taken over was the kitchen and that was like a closet. Welcome to the first episode of Matt and Liam Fix the California Housing Crisis. I am Matt Levin, data reporter with Cal Matters. I'm Liam Dillon, staff writer with the Los Angeles Times. And what are we doing here with this podcast, Liam? What, what are we trying to do? What are we doing here? It's a great question. It's like <laughs> the most basic question of all, right? So for me, I mean, I've been writing about the housing crisis here in California since I started with the Times about 18 months ago. And what I discovered, and is what I want other people to discover, which is that um, how deep this problem really is and how hard it is to fix both politically and practically. So the goal each week is we're going to deconstruct do you like that uh, <laughs> one slice of the intractable housing issue puzzle right um and then follow that up with an interview with a key housing newsmaker that's right so this week we have senator scott weiner of san francisco and maybe liam you can describe why now's a good time to talk to senator weiner yeah so we're in housing month at the legislature uh, this is this is this, this is our time man Woo! this is what we're brought here this to be this is why we're doing this, this is why we're here so uh, last month, um, the Governor Jerry Brown, uh, Senate, Senate President Pro Tem Kevin DeLeon of L.A., and the leader of the Senate, and Assembly Speaker uh, Anthony Rendon, also in the L.A. area, announced that uh, this month, the last month before the legislature lets out for the year in mid-September, they're going to do a big housing package. And so Senator Weiner is one of the authors uh, or an author of one of the key measures in the housing package and has a, uh, a lot of interesting thoughts on the housing issue from when he w covered or was in local government in San Francisco. And he's a perfect person to kick this off with. Um, but first, yes, um, we are going to start with the one number you need to know, and I'm going to push for this to be a recurring segment. <laughs> so I am branding it right now, Leo. Yes. The one number you need to know this week to sound intelligent about housing. Yeah. Um, and that number is? That's 100,000. And why is that number important? Because that's the number of houses that we're not building every year to keep pace with population growth and so you know like many other things uh, housing is a lot of to do with housing is a lot to do with supply and demand right so fewer houses um prices go up right and so what the state has calculated is that it, it, we need roughly 180,000 new homes every year that's single family homes apartments townhomes any kind of home style you could think of um to just to keep, keep pace with the population growth that we have in california people moving in Babies growing up, these it's the number that we need, and yeah. so and it's mostly babies and actually foreign-born people moving here because yes. the costs have gotten so high that native-born people are increasingly leaving the state. We're we're net losing, especially lower-income people. But anyway, exactly. sorry. Yes, so uh, we're building roughly eighty thousand a year, yep. a little more more recently, but we need one hundred eighty thousand. That hundred thousand number 
uh, is what we need to do just to keep the problem from getting worse. And so to me, that number describes how deep of a hole that we're actually in because every year that we don't hit that number, that means it's a bigger hole and more houses that we have to build to dig ourselves out. So 100,000. When your parents ask you why you haven't moved out of your place yet, that's what you hit back with. 100,000. 100,000. This week, we'll be tackling the politics behind housing at the state level, um, which is what Liam basically specializes in and sadly is the only uh, reporter in Sacramento that really specializes in it um, until... Sad. Yes, it is sad. Yeah. Um, Although good for you in some (laughs) way. It's fun, Um, man. But But we thought this would be a good time to delve into... Um, the specific legislation that they're considering as part of this package, right. what what they're actually going to do and kind of what it means for the average Californian. So we're going to start with that. Um, and then after that, we're going to go through the interest groups here in Sacramento that really wield power when it comes to uh, housing policy. Yeah. Dare I say the hornet's nest of interest groups that wield power here. Because housing, unlike many other issues, um, interest groups on the same side of the ideological spectrum on the environment or on um, labor policy or on other types of policies um, are often at odds when it comes to housing. Yes. Yes. I did not say that articulately. No, but, well, you, yes. you got there, man. And it is a hornet's <laughs> nest. They will, they will sting you. You should see my email when I write a story that one of them don't like. It's, nice. yeah. Uh, so. We should have a um, angry NIMBY email of the week. Yeah, maybe you know we got we got to have if you guys have ideas on segments like yes. like please add us on Twitter. This is like please at me, like not don't at me, like actually at me. So <laughs> so that yes. we have more things to talk about. And yeah. since this is the first episode, we should also know we are planning to push this on all your favorite podcast platforms. Hopefully, uh, hopefully it may not be there for for this episode, but for future episodes. Um, and we will also have a Twitter account for this podcast, right. which we will share with you. Right. Try to do it once a week. Yes. That's the goal, That's too. That's the goal. You know, but bear with us as we're kind of getting our feet wet. Okay. Let's yeah. get to the actual policy that they're considering. Yeah. Um, I'm excited. Right. Um, let's go in uh, numeric order. Sure. So there's three main bills, right? Right. So let's back up a little bit. Sure. Uh, in, you know— It's been a very long time since housing sort of been a principal topic here in Sacramento. Um, And we sort of saw that really happen for the first time where the conversation really be kicked to sort of more of the forefront last summer when Governor Jerry Brown introduced a measure that would uh, streamline local regulations for home building and so therefore make it easier to build homes under the argument that, uh, you know, the, if it's easier, the more homes will get built and dealing with the supply and demand issues that, that we had already raised. That 100,000 figure. That 100,000 figure, yeah. exactly. So uh, that piece of legislation was so popular last year in Sacramento that it got zero committee hearings. So no one liked it. And for a variety of reasons, and, and we'll get into some of the reasons later on why some of the interest groups uh, would not have liked it. But uh, for the for the time being, let's just say that that did a good job of kicking off that we needed to have a high-level debate about housing here uh, in the legislature. And so what that led to is in January, uh, 130, more than 130 bills being introduced to deal with the housing crisis in one way or another. And so really a hot topic. Now, sort of fast forward to the end of the year, you know, three weeks left or a few weeks left, we're left with um, sort of three principal measures. There are more bills 
left, of yes. course. But three principal measures that are kind of seen as the premier ones in this housing package. Yes. So the first one is um, Senate Bill 2. SB 2. Uh, from Senator Tony Atkins of uh, Democrat from uh, San Diego. Your hometown. Uh, or uh, my California sorry. hometown. Yes. Yeah, I am from Philadelphia, yes. but San Diego is great as far as working before I moved here. Liam's part yeah. of the problem, people moving from out of That's state right. driving up our rental prices. That's I'm born and bred California. Don't get mad at me. Yeah, but you're also a Clippers fan, which is strange. So. <laughs> that seems irrelevant, <laughs> but continue, Liam. Yes. Anyway. Uh, SB2. SB2 from Senator Atkins. Yes. So what this would do is it would add a $75 fee on most real estate transactions. So if you want to go in and say refinance your mortgage, you have to pay an extra seventy-five bucks uh, when you record that document, right at yeah. the at the county, uh, and that money would go towards helping to finance um, uh, the building of low-income housing. And is that seventy? I mean, this is obviously a leading question, but yes. is that seventy-five dollars? Does that apply to every real estate transaction, or does that apply to only some real estate transactions? <laughs> That's a great question, Matt. <laughs> uh, so, uh, what it does not apply to is the most common real estate transaction, which is when you sell your house. So, uh, uh, and that would would have been a big money maker. Would have added a lot more money to this uh, housing development pot or low income housing development fund. Yeah. Uh, but that was, you know, and we'll get into again, get into more of this later. But that was opposed by realtor interests, and as a result, um, in in previous years, and as a result, did not did not make right. it into that. And the, the trade off is less money for affordable housing. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And this would generate around. Two hundred million about two hundred million a year by itself. That's yes. right. Yes, and mm-hmm. I, like you said, obviously, mm-hmm. if it, if this did a, apply to all real estate transactions, a lot it's more. A great. It's yeah. a much larger number. That's right. Um, let's move to SB three, the bond measure. Right. So Senate Senate Bill three is uh, from Senator Jim Bell of uh, San Jose, a, a Democrat from San Jose, and he's proposing. Um, now, it's important to note that if the legislature passes this, it doesn't mean all of a sudden there's another $3 billion in uh, uh, money that, like Senator Atkins' bill, would go towards uh, building low-income housing. Uh, what it does is it puts a, a measure on the ballot in 2018 where you and I and every other voter in the state um, will get to decide whether we're going to spend this $3 billion or not. And so it's not a tax increase. Um, uh, it would, though, dedicate a particular amount of money from the state's day-to-day budget to pay more for um, for uh, low-income developments. Okay, let's move to uh, – actually, is there anything else we should know about SB3? Yeah, so it's it's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. Uh, and the interesting thing politically, though, for both of these two revenue measures— The two-thirds. Uh, two-thirds. So that means that um, both the, the Assembly and the Senate, two-thirds of both houses have to say yes to both of these bills. And so we have a Democratic supermajority in both houses, uh, but, you know, it's hardly a slam dunk. I and mean, we've already seen Democrats sort of— Get a little bit of cold feet uh, when trying to do other two-thirds measures earlier in this year, notably uh, the climate change measure, extending cap and trade, which is the way that we sort of um, sort of help finance um, uh, our efforts to meet climate change goals, right? Uh, and so, um, not easy, not easy for either of them, uh, particularly as it's, it's unlikely, um, especially on uh, Atkins' bill, Senate Bill Two, to really see any Republican support. And so just kind of following that thread up, so SB2 and SB3 both obviously successfully pass out of the Senate. Correct. They're waiting to be approved in the Assembly. Right. The bond measure got some Republican support. 
the increased fee on real estate transactions uh, got no Republican support. That's correct, yeah. Um, and now to SB yeah. 35, yeah. Um, yeah. Senator Weiner's bill. Yeah, Senator Weiner um, introduced this measure, which is sort of modeled uh, after the, the, the governor's measure that I had referenced, we had referenced a little bit earlier, which essentially uh, says that if a developer proposes a project on a piece of land that's already zoned for that amount of housing, uh, then the city is not allowed to hold additional meetings uh, about that project. And so the project just gets done, gets built. Again, provided the underlying zoning matches uh, what, the, what the developer is proposing, and provided also the developer agrees to a certain um, other kind of series of things um, that uh, whether they're higher pay for construction workers or whether it's setting aside a certain percentage of their development for low-income residents, these are the metrics you have to meet to qualify for this sort of streamlined or speedy processing. And let's, I think it's worthwhile to kind of, let's pretend we're a city. Yeah. Let's pick a city. Sure. Uh, you seem really enthused about this. Yeah, Larkspur. <laughs> Where's Larkspur? Marin County. Oh, okay, perfect. Yes. Uh, yes. Now I know why you, why you picked this. Yes. And let's say the state tells us we need to, we're supposed to produce X amount of housing, right, for higher income, for higher income, middle income, and lower income folks, right? Right. And we're not doing a good job of that. No. We're doing, we're hitting like 20% of that, we think, because we're not even reporting good data on it, right? Right. Mm -hmm. um, how does this bill affect that equation? So this bill says, then you got to do this. You have to streamline. Whereas, Or if, what? Or, well, uh, there's no or. Or they just have to have a lot more housing built in their community. This bill, it's a good point. This bill only applies in communities where these housing goals, which the state sets out, uh, sort of home building goals in every community, set out over an eight-year period uh, at various income levels. And if it only if building is not occurring in that city uh, or county to the level that the state has had sort of set out, then these sort of streamlining rules will kick in. If the building's going great, um, then they won't. Yes. Which brings me to... Um, you had a piece recently that looked at the impact of uh, these bills collectively and how much of a dent it's going to make in that 100,000 number, right? Yeah. How, how it, how's this going to actually alleviate the housing crisis? And we're going to devote an entire podcast to the impact of this legislation once it's passed and when we, once we know the details of what's actually in it. But what's kind of your perspective on what's this actually going to do? to do for the average Californian? Not much. I like the dramatic pause. Was, I try to be real dramatic with that, man. Like, because <laughs> maybe the listener was going to think a lot. <laughs> no, but the answer, the answer, my friend, the answer is not much. And, you know, I mean, point being that, yes, like like having a dedicated attention and, 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 and effort in Sacramento to deal with this in some way, everyone agrees that the way you solve this problem, you need more money, to subsidize low-income building, and you need more building in general. And so anything that gets you to either of those things, you know, um, while there are pluses and minuses to every policy, right, um, is a little bit in that bucket, right? But this is most definitely a drop. I mean, when I was sort of very generous to, to, to proponents of these measures as far as what, um, how many more units or how much more money these things were going to raise, you know, I got about, you know, roughly 14000 new homes a year and if we're a hundred thousand short of just keeping pace with population growth 14,000 or so is not not really moving the needle now let's move on um we are going to walk you through the hornet's nest that is 
um, the politics behind housing policy here. Uh, we, Liam has isolated a handful of interest groups. We're going to quickly summarize what their agendas are and how they have influenced the legislation that we have already talked about, um, as well as any and all future legislation. Uh, let's start with the obvious ones, the developers. Yeah, so developers, right? They want to be able to build things uh, with the least amount of costs, right? And just let me just to take one step back. You know, it's interesting as we go through, we're going to go through all these groups. Yes. We're in the abstract, they all want the same thing, or it's all good for them to have the same thing. More home building is good for developers, obviously. It's good for uh, good for labor groups. It's good for cities. It's just good because they all get stuff out of that right um but when we get to these sort of micro level or lower level arguments that's where this sort of stinging each other goes along uh and that's why we don't extend the metaphor yeah well it was a good metaphor and so that's why we don't see a lot of this policy actually getting passed is because these very powerful groups are always at war with each other uh so back to developers right they want to be able to build the most with the least amount of cost right and so they don't like um labor you know provisions that would require them to pay construction workers more they don't like certain environmental provisions that would you know make it harder for them to build in certain areas they also don't like when say affordable housing folks or other groups try to force them to build low-income housing themselves right because all those things would take a bite out of their bottom line and they would argue that it doesn't allow them to build enough housing as they would otherwise be able to do where do they stand on some of the bills that we've talked about? so they're at this point they're either friendly to or not against uh, the bills, I which, think, which is notable, which is notable, and and it's interesting because we, I think really here, save one of these interest groups we're going to talk about, um, they're all generally in the same stance on the on these three bills, uh, which is that they are either supportive or not super opposed, um, going to stay on the sideline, and that's you know frankly the probably the reason why they have made these bills have made it as hard, as far as they have, and probably why they, each of the three have a decent shot of passing. Let's move from developers to another interest group kind of on the same with a similar set of interests, the uh, surprisingly powerful realtors. Yeah. So they want anything that will increase home sales. And so obviously having more homes to sell, like sheer supply, also benefits them. But also they worry about anything that would increase costs for homeowners, as we were talking about before. And so, you know, adding fees, um, uh, the reason why they walked back or forced back uh, Atkins' original bill, which would have um, uh, added the $75 transaction fee to all uh, transactions, including home sales, they said, nah. And that was because of that, it wouldn't even come up for a vote. I, it's interesting. I, that was one of the things that I learned when I started covering state politics was, oh, wow, the realtors are much more powerful than I originally thought right i don't think most californians you know when they when they think politicians are being influenced by a special interest they think oil groups they think labor unions they don't think realtors they don't think the the person with the bench you know yep. with ads on the bench yep. or on the supermarket uh grocery cart that's right yes that's right but hey they, they they're a big player up here um let's talk about affordable housing advocates so they obviously want uh money right because these folks want money, and you often need subsidies to build below the market rate, and so for build developments below the market rate, and so they need money to do that. And the state, you know, is a decent uh, provide source of that money, and that's why they argue for that. Also, you know, they sometimes tend to fight the market rate developers, sort of the BIA groups, the Building Industry Association, which I, which we just mentioned before, because 
you know, if you streamline um, or make it easier to build in general, some of these affordable housing groups will say, well, wait a second, this is we're now competing with these sort of slick back hair, you know, super developers and with more money than us. And they're going to win the bids for these parcels of land. And so maybe legislature just make it easier to build for us and not them because, you know, we're serving a different population. Let's talk about uh, environmental groups and their role in housing policy. So um, the primary law governing development in in California is the California Environmental Quality Act. CEQA. CEQA. We need a sound effect for CEQA, should, like a bell. That's a great idea. Or something. Yeah, we're, this is, that's awesome. We need that. Okay. If you have your ideas, tell us what, your, what our CEQA sound should be. <laughs> um, so... What this law does is basically tells developers, anyone who builds anything, they have to uh, disclose any potential impacts on the environment that the project may have and then talk about how they might limit or lessen or eliminate those effects on the environment. So sometimes that means, you know, oh, um, uh, you know, you're going to have to – you're going to increase traffic and so you need to build another turn lane if you're going to build this project because that will alleviate some of the traffic concerns, right? Yeah. So that's a co- very common sort of CEQA remedy. That And those things cost money. Building a turn lane costs money, right? And so it's not just the mitigation or not just the, the things developers have to pay or build. It's actually the, the, the CEQA process is extremely time-consuming, right? And so a lot of folks will argue that CEQA stops or, or slows down or substantially bothers developments uh, from getting done. That being said, um, a lot of environmental groups credit it for helping maintain and preserve the natural beauty of California, right? Uh, And so these changes are sort of changing this law is so fraught with so many complications that many environmental groups, even if they are amenable to seeing some things changed, need to be very, feel very protective of this law and need to be at the table and need to be taken care of whenever changes this law are discussed. And Wiener's bill, SB 35, would basically sidestep CEQA for those housing developments that qualify, correct? Yeah, so what it does, it doesn't say, it does not say you get, you're exempted from CEQA. What it says is, oh, well, because your land is zoned, uh, you're, this is not a discretionary event, right? And we're getting into the CEQA weeds here. Yes, but, but because, But because... Um, the city sort of has no discretion, has no choice over yeah. the matter. A CEQA is not triggered. Therefore, the law sort of writes away CEQA. doesn't say you're exempt from CEQA, but writes away CEQA from these particular projects. Which is hugely important for developer, from a developer's perspective. Exactly. That's one of the sort of time-consuming and costly elements yeah. of their process. And so how do environmental groups kind of stack up on some of the bills we've mentioned? Right. So uh, uh, the sort of some of the big name groups, um, uh, Natural Resources Defense Council, um, are in favor of, uh, of Wiener's bill, in part because they've, they've been able to narrow some of the areas that this would apply to such that uh, they feel that it adequately cares about the environment. So wasn't it like wetlands areas or— That was some concern last yeah. year that there was— the governor's uh, bill would have applied to wetlands or other sorts of things, and so that's why the, a lot of the environmental groups were, besides sort of the high-level opposition to generally doing things that involve changing things that involve CEQA, um, some concerns sort of in the weeds again about what the what that project might, or what that bill might have done. Let's talk about labor and the prevailing wage. Yeah, so uh, labor groups, right? Yes. So, um, 
State Building and Construction Trades Council is the name for the construction workers union. Uh, and so, you know, they want um, they want their workers to be paid more, uh, period. And they're an extremely influential group here. And they have a pretty good um, uh, pithy argument for that. They said, you know, workers should not be building housing that they can't afford. Or more precisely, construction workers should not be adding to the affordable housing problem, right? We shouldn't have, we shouldn't be, have a system whereby construction workers don't get paid enough that they need affordable housing themselves. And so um, instructive to look at this through the lens of the governor's legislation last year versus Wiener's legislation this year. Uh, the, you know, the governor said, nah, it'd be too costly to mandate sort of union level wages or prevailing wages for construction workers for a project to uh, sort of qualify for this sort of streamlined review, right? And labor, the building trade essentially killed uh, the governor's bill last year. This year, Wiener comes in and says, this is his first year in the legislature, and says, I want to do this housing bill similar to the governor's. My first call, literally what he said, my first call was to the building trades and said, hey, what do you guys want? And, you know, building trades got on board, prevailing wage, these union level wages were put into the bill early on. Later on, to get their support, he added sort of some union level work rules or hiring rules or thing, apprenticeship programs, things like that. And once those things got into the bill, Building trades are on board, and again, that's why we're we're seeing movement on Wiener's bill. Talk about the uh, urban versus very quickly the urban versus suburban kind of uh, implications of the prevailing wage. Yeah, so in a lot of urban areas, particularly San Francisco, to a lesser extent, Los Angeles, these sort of union level uh, wages are already sort of They're baked into there. costs, and so. There's an argument, and it's a pretty good one, that the that the Wiener's bill will be sort of more voluntary or developers will want to use it more where prevailing wage costs are already baked into the cost of doing business, right? It actually provides a real benefit in those in those cities, whereas maybe, you know, Roseville in the Sacramento region, not a ton of prevailing wage projects right now. Therefore, is it going to be worth a developer's time to maybe save two community meetings or maybe save – uh, you know, paying for a sequel review to use this Wiener streamlining procedure. I don't know um, because the wage costs are are, are what they are. Um, let's talk about local governments. So uh, they don't like any of it. Well, they like the money, but they don't like the they don't like the streamlining because streamlining is another another word for we're taking your power away. Yes. Right. And so who wants that? Right. And so, um, you know, they're they're uh, sort of the most prominent opponents to, to Wiener's legislation. But generally speaking, there's a sort of fight over who will regulate development. And in California in particular, the vast majority of that is done through local government, local government. You know, all the city council meetings are saying yay or nay on particular projects. The state's not doing that. And so if the state comes in and says, you're not allowed to do this, you're not allowed to do that, and you can't have this meeting, you can't have, you can only have one meeting and not 10, then they're mad, right? Um, and, you know, it is easy to feel some sympathy in some ways because, um, you know, I was in San Diego, like we said before I came up here, and the biggest, biggest fight at the city council level in San Diego, and this is the case across California, generally speaking, are development projects. I don't want that near me, or I do want that near me, but mostly it's, I don't want that near me, right? And then you have people wearing fancy shirts, colored shirts, holding waving signs, and it's like chaos in these city council chambers over development projects. And so, you know, if I'm a city council person and, you know, I feel like I'm being responsive to the needs of my constituents if I say no, even if 
I have that 100,000 figure in my mind, knowing that the state needs more housing, um, it's much easier to say or, or uh, no, because that's what, that's what my neighbors and people who elected me said. I want to say what they want. Um, I'm going to slow clap. Yeah. That was very impressive. Uh, um, now let's talk to Senator Wiener. So, Senator Wiener, can you explain why it is so hard to deal legislatively with the housing problems that we have in California? Um, for 150 years in California, we have <clears throat> left housing almost entirely up to local communities. We've let local communities have almost complete control over whether they add any housing, and, and if so, uh, how much. Uh, even when the state has stepped in and uh, adopted rules, like rules that you have to uh, allow in-law units or you have to have a d allow for a density bonus um, or you can't arbitrarily downzone, uh, th these state rules have almost no enforcement. And so local communities, frankly, including my own city of San Francisco, for decades have just blown off state requirements with no repercussions. Uh, so effectively, we've uh, allowed each uh, town or city to be a fiefdom as if they existed in their own universe uh, in terms of housing. Uh, and, and as a result, it's been intensely hard in a systematic way to get more housing created in California. There are some cities and towns that take their responsibility really seriously and try to add uh, housing, for example, Redwood City in the Bay Area, um, but there are others who blow it off, and and that's the challenge. So we have to pass the rules, have good enforcement mechanisms in the rules, in terms of the state rules, uh, and then actually have the political fortitude to enforce them. So this was an issue you uh, did a lot with when you were in the Board of Supervisors in San Francisco. This is your first year here in the legislature. What in dealing with this issue here in Sacramento has surprised you? What, what has been a very pleasant surprise is the broad and deep support for more housing in California and housing reform. Uh, when I, uh, last December, um, on the day I took office, I introduced my housing streamlining bill, uh, SB 35. And uh, I remember thinking on that day, well, this will be uh, a nice gesture. Maybe we'll keep it alive for a couple months, start, start a good conversation. But there's no way that this bill is going to make any significant progress. Uh, because I assumed that uh, that legislators were not going to want to buck local control. Uh, and I was very pleasantly surprised as I started speaking to other senators and assembly members, uh, members who I never thought would support a streamlining bill were strongly supportive. Uh, and to the point where SB 35 in the Senate got um, almost a two-thirds vote, uh, it's been doing really well in the assembly and time after time we go to a committee or we go to a member that I just assume will be against it, but they're actually for it. Uh, and I think that reflects the profound threat that, um, that our housing shortage uh, presents to the state and members get it. Can you give me a particular example of that or some sort of 
actual interaction you had with someone? Well, there there are some members who um, they came from local government in areas that have not always been hospitable to housing. So I'll give an example of someone who does not get enough uh, credit for, for his, uh, I think, strong stances on housing, um, Senator Jerry Hill, my, uh, my neighbor to the south who represents uh, the bulk of San Mateo County and part of Santa Clara County, so including some communities that are intensely anti-housing. Uh, and he himself started out as a city council member and before that a neighborhood activist in the city of San Mateo, which has not always been the most hospitable place to housing. Uh, and, uh, and Jerry Hill has been I mean, just a, a rock star on these issues. I mean, he has just been absolutely across the board supportive of housing reform. He's been uh, vocal on the Brisbane situation, the town to the south of San Francisco that uh, is um, obstructing 4,400 units of uh, potential housing. Um, and, uh, and, and when I sat down with, with Jerry to talk about SB 35, he was immediately supportive. Uh, Cecilia Aguiar-Curry uh, in the, 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 the Davis-Napa area, um, a former mayor of her town. Uh, she chaired a committee that was um, a, in the assembly, the local government committee that the bill had to go through. I wasn't sure what she would think about it as a former mayor of a smaller city. Uh, and she was immediately supportive. She got it. Uh, so uh, that's the sea change. Mm -hmm. uh, and and a, a housing crisis will create that kind of sea change. Mm -hmm. One thing uh, we had talked about earlier uh, in in this episode of the podcast is see, the, the interest groups that play on housing are very powerful uh, and numerous. And I'm curious how you've um, worked through to try to navigate between, say, uh, developer development community, the realtor community, labor and environmentalists, not just on your bill, but also in terms of how the entire package got, got uh, put together. Sure. Uh, first of all, it's a good thing that everyone more and more is interested in housing, and it's not just a niche issue that a few people deal with here in Sacramento. Um, that's actually a positive thing in the long run because everyone wants to get more housing built. Uh, so we have been working with a variety of groups, labor, business, um, our nonprofit affordable housing uh, developers, housing activists, environmentalists, um, and so forth. Uh, and there is a p push and a pull for the, the biggest one for SB 35 and for other bills has been around prevailing wage uh, with uh, labor uh, and the trades, the building and construction trades, uh, very much uh, wanting to have a requirement for, to pay prevailing wage uh, and the development community not really wanting that. Uh, and so uh, for a long time uh, or for quite some time, labor was either opposing our bill or, or, or at least neutral and skeptical. Uh, and we worked with them and, and we you know made some compromises and they made compromises that not every project will be covered by prevailing wage, uh, that it'll be sort of a scaled approach. Um, and uh, you know in the development community, we have developers who are uh, supporting the bill, but there are others who have stayed back because they don't like prevailing wage. Um, and so that, you know, that's one of those areas where there's just a disagreement and we try to navigate it the best that we, uh, the best that we could. But aside from that issue, uh, we have gotten very, very strong support in the business community. Large companies like, for example, Facebook has been a strong supporter. Um, the Silicon Valley Leadership Group, um, the Los Angeles Chamber of Commerce, other local uh, chambers, because um, even though, uh, you know, no one is ever going to, um, 
you know, like everything about your bill, uh, if you have a complicated bill that covers a significant area, um, you know, they, they understand that, that, that what we're doing here, not just SB 35, but the whole package is a big step uh, forward. And so our, the business community, as well as the apartment association, the realtors have been uh, strongly pushing for uh, the bill and the, and the entire package. I'm curious, you know, for the last few years, there have been other issues that have kind of taken center stage, whether it's the environmental issues or most recently this year with, with transportation and the gas tax and housing sort of been on the sideline of that. And I wonder if you see perhaps now or even more precisely going into the governor's race next year, whether you see this being a premier or the premier issue that people have to talk about and, pro and propose sort of plans on to deal with. I, I, I truly hope that it is a significant issue. Uh, in the governor's race. It should be a significant issue uh, in the governor's race because what we're doing this year, uh, you know, I hope we will pass this package. I believe we will. And uh, it, it will be a, a good step forward. I, I like to refer to it as a, uh, as a healthy down payment uh, on housing, but it is not the end of the road. Just like SB1 was not the end of the road in terms of transportation funding. That's the gas tax. Uh, the gas tax yep. increase. Um, uh, it was a big step forward and uh, it's important for us uh, to avoid uh, passing this package and then saying okay we can check the box uh, we did housing no this is step one we're gonna have to continue to reform our approach to housing and to fund affordable housing for years to come because it took us about 50 years to get into this mess and we're not going to get out of it overnight or in a year and or even in five years it's going to take consistency over time. Thank you, Senator Weir. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the inaugural episode of Matt and Liam Fix the California Housing Crisis. That's a working title. It's probably too long. We may be changing that in the weeks to come. Uh, special thanks to uh, Senator Scott Weiner for joining Liam for that interview. Um, and also thanks to the hapless millennials in Dolores Park in San Francisco that I interviewed about their awful living situations. Um, that's what you heard at the very top of the podcast. Um, a couple quick notes. So we recorded this podcast on Sunday, August 27th. Since then, there's been a, a couple developments on that legislative package that Liam, Liam and I were discussing. Um, basically, the governor and legislative leaders uh, think they have a deal. Um, so uh, I don't think there's anything really outdated in what we talked about, but um, we will be hopefully dissecting the specifics of that package next week. We should also note, so this podcast for now is an independent production of myself um, with uh, Liam as my recurring guest. Any views or opinions expressed here by me or Liam aren't a reflection of the respective media organizations that we work for. You can read more of Liam's great work at Dylan Liam um, on Twitter. Um, he will also probably be front and center of the L.A. Times this week um, because of that housing package. Um, you could read me at M. Levin Reports on Twitter. Uh, we also have a pretty popular housing card deck that explains the California housing crisis in as uh, simple terms as we could get. Um, on calmatters.org. Uh, so be sure to check that out if you want just a quick, easy primer on how bad it is and how it's gotten this bad. Um, and that's it. We're kind of just throwing this out there, seeing if there's an audience or appetite for it. 
we will hopefully be recording another one of these next week and maybe a weekly podcast in the future. Um, so, yeah, let us know your thoughts. You can tweet uh, me, tweet Liam, email us. Um, let us know what issues you think we should cover. Um, we're excited to do this. All right. Uh, thanks again for listening. And good luck paying your rent. Thank you.